All engine running. <laughs> Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery, advances, questions, research, technology, unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists, where we aim to bring you the latest in science, technology, medicine and more. I'm Julia Ravey and this week we have an excellent panel of spectacular science specialists who will be diving into their areas of expertise and sharing all the goods. In this episode, we are going to be hearing about how Formula One technology is changing the world, tools for coping with grief and some of the biggest controversies in science media. If there's something you have always wanted to know about tech, medicine, engineering, etc., you can ask us. We love to get to the bottom of scientific conundrums here. If you head to thenakedscientist.com and click onto our Ask a Question tab, you can submit whatever queries have been on your mind. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. We have an incredible panel this week who will be hopping along with us for the next hour and sharing their knowledge nuggets on the way. First up, we have Mary Frances O'Connor, who joins us stateside today. Mary Frances is a neuroscientist who specialises in the study of grief. Mary Frances's new book, The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss, shares the groundbreaking discoveries about what happens in our brain when we grieve and gives a different perspective on understanding love and loss. Mary Frances, what is the difference between grief and grieving? And how do you study this in your lab? Well, I think the distinction between grief and grieving is not something we use day to day. We we use those words interchangeably. But if you think about it, grief is that that feeling, that wave that that just overcomes you, that intense and awful feeling. But grieving is the way that feeling of grief changes over time without actually ever going away. So the reason I think it's useful to make this distinction is that we will feel grief forever whenever we become aware of something so important to us that we've lost, even if that's weeks and months and years after the death of a loved one. Just in that moment, you know, you 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 open a book and you see a card from, from your, your mom who's died. And of course, you're going to feel grief in that moment, right? But it doesn't mean just because you feel grief then that your grieving hasn't also changed. So, you know, the first hundred times you may think, I'm not going to get through this, this wave of grief. And then the hundred and first time, it's just as awful, but it's more familiar. You know, you know, I am going to get through this. And maybe you even have some, some tools to sort of comfort yourself or, or reach out to someone else. My very favorite technique is very scientific. It's called the clinical interview. And we spend a lot of time talking with people about what their experience is like, because often their description really gives us insights into the way that the brain is working. We also use neuroimaging scans, brain scans, where we have someone bring us a photo of the person who's died. And we we put that on goggles when they're in the neuroimaging scanner so they can look at the person. And that often elicits that wave of grief for them. So, so we can see what neurons are being activated. So next, coming out of the pit lane, is Kit Chapman. 
Kit has a background in pharmacy and science history and is an award-winning science journalist who covers topics like chemistry, nuclear science and element discovery. Kit's latest book, Racing Green, How Motorsport Science Can Save the World, explores how the science of motorsport goes way beyond the thrilling races which captivate audiences in their millions. Kit, what is the link between Formula One cars and keeping food cool? So this is the aerodynamics of Formula One cars and Formula One teams such as Williams uh, actually use their aerodynamics in supermarket freezers. So if you've gone to a supermarket recently and you've gone to one of those reach-in freezers where you get your food literally straight from the freezer, probably it's used Formula One aerodynamics. In a freezer, the cold air starts at the top and it flows down to the bottom. And usually when it hits a shelving unit or someone's hand, that's going to spill out of the cabinet. That's not what you want. What you want is a nice controlled flow that sort of moves between the shelves. It keeps the cold air in, it keeps your feet warm, and it stops using energy that would otherwise be needed to cool that cabinet. So you also reduce carbon footprints if you can control that air. And what Formula One teams have done is they've invented blades which literally clip onto those shelving units and keep the air flowing back into the cabinets. So that saves a huge amount of energy for each individual store. And when you think about how many supermarkets there are in the world, suddenly we'll be having a massive impact on climate change. Very cool. And that was a really bad pun from me. So on to our next panellist, Fiona Fox, who is head of the Science Media Centre. The Science Media Centre is an independent press office which gives members of the public access to scientific evidence and expertise when science hits the headlines. Fiona's new book, Beyond the Hype, the inside story of science's biggest media controversies, offers a backstage pass to the real science behind those attention-grabbing headlines over the past two decades. Fiona, what is the best way we can ensure a new source we're reading is legitimate when it comes to science reporting? I think to double-check where the scientist is speaking from and ask a few questions about the article you're reading or, or who you're listening to, like what size of study this is, at what stage it was at, is it a really early results from maybe a, a preprint that hasn't yet been published or is it a huge, big, randomised control trial that, that confirms the previous 10. So there's a few little tips that, that we give to the public as to work out whether or not they should take an article they're reading as very reliable and close to the truth or, or very preliminary and a long way off the truth. Finally, we have the out-of-this-world public astronomer of the University of Cambridge, Matt Bothwell. Matt has a background in researching astrophysics, studying how galaxies evolved over cosmic time, Matt works as a science communicator, giving talks and workshops on astrophysics and has authored a book, The Invisible Universe, Why There's More to Reality Than Meets the Eye. Matt, what is your favourite object in the universe that we can't see and why? Uh, oh, it's a very good question. Um, I think I might be absolutely biased and say that it's one of my hidden galaxies I used to work on. Uh, very, very far away in the universe there are we can see galaxies which are sort of like baby galaxies they've just formed we're looking at them just maybe 500 million years or a billion years after the big bang so we're looking back to when the universe was about five percent of its current age and there are these galaxies that are just the biggest firework shows in the universe they are making stars like nothing else they're just churning out stars in a way that nothing else uh, in the cosmos does and we can't see them at all with our naked eye uh, because they're so dusty and they're cocooned away uh, that 
no visible light leaks out. So we have no idea that these things existed until we looked with long wavelength infrared telescopes. And then we suddenly saw the early universe lit up like a firework show. Um, it's absolutely remarkable. It's a real testament to the power of invisible light to reveal things in the universe that we can't see. Wow, like New Year's Eve on steroids. Sounds like yeah, something absolutely. I definitely want to see. <laughs> so we're going to do a little Easter egg hunt. Have any of you taken part in an Easter egg hunt before? A long time ago, I think. Maybe. <laughs> if it's the typical one, you know, with the with the actual eggs or jelly beans sometimes. <laughs> well, this one is a bit special. And it's a trail that we're going to try and follow throughout the episode with special science clues which should hopefully lead you to the next clue destination. And we have the Easter Bunny here with the first clue. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Naked Scientist's Excellent Egg Trail, hosted by yours truly, the always ecstatic Easter Bunny. Enough chit-chat, though. Time to scramble around the world looking for those eggs. Your first clue is, this egg has found a great place to hide where scientists make particles collide. Fiona, do you know where we should head in order to find the next clue? CERN. <laughs> oh, CERN. So that's in France, Switzerland? So it's on the border, isn't it? Switzerland, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so it's on the border. Well, we'll have to wait and see. We'll jump on a plane now. Mary Frances, it's a bit of a distance for you, actually. For us, it's a couple of hours. For you, it's a bit of a shift. But get over to CERN and see if the bunny is waiting there for us with the next clue. So first of all, we're going to do a spotlight on Mary Frances's work on grief. Over the past two years, many of us have sadly experienced grief. And whether that's through the personal loss of a loved one or the general sense of loss that the pandemic and other big world events like war have brought us, or just loss of the way life was before 2020, to be honest. So Mary Frances, your new book explains the research undertaken to understand grief. What has research taught us about how grief impacts our brains and our bodies? I think one of the things I find most fascinating is that you can't study the neurobiology of grief without also understanding the neurobiology of love, of attachment. So the death of a loved one, it's not just a stressful life event. Of course, it is that. But it isn't just like surviving an earthquake or, or being robbed. The neurobiology of grief teaches us that first there is the encoding of your loved one in the brain, and that is what causes the feelings of loss when a loved one dies. And it means that the brain then has this representation, it has this image of of a we. And so then when the person is gone, when they've died, it really is like a piece of us is gone as well, just exactly the way people describe feeling like there's a hole where the loved one should be. Why does it take so long for our brains to come to terms with loss? And are there individual differences in how extensive this time period is? Well, you can think about the brain as a prediction machine, right? So your heart is there to pump blood around your body. Your brain is there to try and predict what might happen next. And it does this by using all the days of lived experience that it's accumulated. Say a woman wakes up alone in bed in the morning and and her husband isn't there next to her. And he has been there for thousands and thousands of days. That first morning, it's actually not a very good prediction to assume that he's died, 
rather it takes a long time and, and more importantly, a lot of experiences for the brain to really update, to know that this is the new state of the world for you. And for that reason, I think it's very helpful to think of grieving as a form of learning. And we all know learning, it takes a long time. We've been doing this our whole lives, right? It it can be very frustrating. It's not usually a sort of linear direction that it takes. Yeah, I really like that, thinking of it as learning, because we've all experienced grief or we will experience grief in our lives. It's bound to be a very tough time for people. But are there tools or methods which can make this process healthier for people going through it? The most important thing is having a big toolkit of coping skills. So it really is about flexibly being able to use different coping methods, depending on what the situation is that you're in at the present. So, for example, if your son has a football game, right, it it may be perfectly appropriate to just think, I'm not going to think about this right now. I'm just going to pretend this hasn't happened. Uh, that my loved one has died. I'm just going to, you know, cheer for my son in this game for the next 40 minutes and and not think about it at all. That kind of avoidance in in small doses is totally appropriate because it fits the situation. It's also really important to have someone whose shoulder you might cry on, that you might try to explain how you're feeling, which is often very different than what people are expecting to feel. But also ways to physically relax. Grieving is extremely stressful for the body as well as the mind. And so things like yoga and going for a walk actually help you be more resilient through this really difficult process. The word grieving is used outside the context of losing a loved one in our life. It's also described when we like lose a job or we break up with a romantic partner. So is this type of grief different biologically to when you lose someone? You know, in terms of evolution, a loved one is as important to our survival as food and water. So for that reason, this is why we have that attachment neurobiology around this bond. And then the grief that is evoked when that loved one is gone is very deeply conserved. It's a loss of a part of ourselves. If you think of the word daughter, even though I'm using that to describe me, it actually describes two people, doesn't it? And so there's this loss of a piece of yourself. And that's similar to other kinds of losses, loss of a job, right? Or loss of health. Those are both a part of a loss of yourself. So I think the feelings of grief piggyback then on this neurobiology of grief that may have evolved around the death of our loved ones. But that's, I think, why it feels so familiar. And you use neuroscience to try and understand grief. What would be the biggest question you hope neuroscience research can help us answer about grief, about this topic? I think a lot of people want to understand, does it matter the way we think about our loved one, the way we think about grief, all the the ways we manage those intrusive thoughts that just keep coming to us. Does it matter how much we express our grief to, to other people or through art? And so most of our neuroimaging studies right now are of grief, right, of that moment. But it would take multiple brain scans across, say, the first year or two of the same person while they're grieving to see how the brain changes over time and whether some of these expressions of grief and and the way we cope with our thoughts really makes a difference as to how the brain adapts over time. 
from baffling British weather the sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, an update on the James Webb Telescope as it preps for capturing the universe, how technology is used in F1 racing saved lives during the pandemic, and if science and politics can ever be separated. Okay, it is now time for our next clue on the egg trail. We thought the bunny was insane, so let's see if we were barking up the right tree. I am at a Hadron Collider in CERN. Well done, Fiona. You got us to the right place. You found the first egg. But let's not delay any longer. We don't want to be chocolate. Your next clue is... This egg is lying in a pit where a ginormous asteroid hit. So, Matt, what do you think? Are we going to be moving away from Europe in order to find the next clue? Uh, yeah, I suspect we might be heading over toward Mary Frances' neck of the woods. Uh, there's the big uh, crater in northern Arizona. And what, what happened to that crater? Uh, an enormous asteroid, is it, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, clues in the name of crater, isn't it, really? There's a big hole. Well, yeah, we'll see. We'll have to see if that's where we end up. So Mary Frances, that's a doddle for you. Stroll, stroll. Let's zoom straight into our next science spotlight. The 2023 Formula One races are underway. And while there is always a lot of drama and excitement when the race cars are flying around the track at over 200 miles per hour, it is the feats of science and engineering off the track that are actually impacting the world that we live in and we don't even know it. So Kit, what science goes on on the sidelines of Formula One racing and how has this been used during the pandemic? There's so much science that goes on around Formula One. So when you look at cars around the track, don't see cars racing. Think about the world's fastest R&D lab because there are thousands of engineers that put those cars on track and they're always coming up with great ideas to make them go a second or a tenth of a second or even a hundredth of a second faster. And those ideas spill out into our world. So in March 2020, we were in real trouble. We didn't have enough ventilators to keep people alive. And also we didn't want people going on ventilators because ultimately if someone's on a ventilator, they're on it for a month. So UCL, University College London, were looking at how they could use what's called CPAP machines, which is continuous positive airway pressure. And so the staff, Rebecca Shipley, who was a professor there, and she contacted another professor, Tim Baker, who had previously worked in Formula One. And he made a few phone calls and he called up the engineering team at Mercedes-AMG High Performance Powertrains. And these produce the engines for Formula One cars. They sent down three engineers. But within 26 hours, they had taken apart an old CPAP machine that they'd found. They had actually copied it and, and prototyped it. In three days, they had that on the ward. Within 12 days, they'd actually got medical approval from the regulatory agency of the UK, not just for that device, but a device that they had actually based on it specifically for COVID patients. And within 30 days, they had produced 10,000 of them for the NHS. They had turned a factory that produced Formula One car engines into a medical production facility. The quality of engineering that they can do and the speed in which they can do it is phenomenal. 
and it saved lives during the pandemic. And the title of your book, Racing Green, also indicates that some of these ingenious inventions are sustainable for the planet as well. How are some of the engineering methods of Formula One helping our planet? We've got regenerative braking, which is when you brake, the energy can be turned from the brakes and basically helping to power a battery in your car. You've got electric cars. A lot of people don't know that the first ever purpose-built racer was actually an electric car. We're also seeing use of new materials. So, for example, McLaren have actually been making their driver's seats out of flax fibres and using that instead of carbon fibre, which is incredibly CO2 intensive to actually make. We're even making tyres out of dandelions. So instead of using rubber from traditional Amazon sources, and that's now moved over to sort of Southeast Asia and Thailand, we were actually localising them and Continental are growing tyres out of dandelion rubber, which is just astonishing to me. That is incredible. All of those dandelions that, you know, you pick up to do your dandelion clocks, you'd be like, hold them, get them into tyre production. Fantastic. And are there any interesting developments in the world of Formula One in terms of advancing technology and engineering, which you think will make an exciting impact on other industries in the future? The one that I think is really exciting is graphene. Graphene is one of those wonderful materials. It's essentially one single molecule thick chicken wire is the best way to think of it. And we were in the position that the Victorians were in. The Victorians could never imagine what plastics would actually be able to bring to society. They had no idea about how we would use plastics in our daily lives. In the same way, we have absolutely no idea how graphene is going to be used. But we're already seeing it in Formula One. They're looking at it in lubricants, in coolant facilities to actually use carbon to cool down engines and things like that. They're looking at the bodywork in terms of the electronics because it's a fantastic electrical conductor. And they're even looking at it in crash helmets. That's actually already being used. I think graphene is the big one that's really going to just span out and we can't even comprehend the changes that's going to bring to our lives. Well, very excited to see where that goes in the future. And just like the Grand Prix, your work is taking you all over the world talking about science history. And as a science storyteller, what is the most important message that you like to convey when you are communicating? Well, you're absolutely right. I've travelled to, I think, 76 countries now, and I've, I've gone down the Amazon. I've been around, the, around Cape Horn. I've literally circumnavigated South America. The thing that I would most want people to take away from, from science is how interconnected it is. Just because one idea is happening in one area doesn't mean it can't spin out into another and everything impacts. We're no longer looking at this, you know, a sole scientist striving and coming up with an idea and then doing it in isolation. It's now big teams and collaborations and everything joins together. It's all about the interconnectivity of our world. And that really pushes science forward. Brilliant. Yeah. When we put all our minds together, we make much more progress. So from one science storyteller to another, Fiona, you are the chief executive of the Science Media Centre in the UK. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Science Media Centre does and what its mission is? Yes, we're an independent press office and we were set up um, around 2002. So we're 20 this year and we were really in the wake of the big media controversies around GM crops, Frankenfoods killed, MMR causing autism, as was alleged then, and, and animal rights extremism as well, which was at its high point. So it was felt at that time that the scientific community were just not engaging in enough numbers or effectively enough with these kind of big, messy, politicised controversies. So our mission is really to improve the quality 
of the science that is is being seen and heard by the public through the news media. So we've got very narrow focus on the news media, but a very big goal, which is the wider public and their views on vaccination, climate change, animal research, etc. And the way we do it is by making it easier for journalists to get access to really, really good quality scientists. Yeah, that's so important now as well with how fast news spreads. So it's really important. It comes initially from the horse's mouth from a great source. And your book, Beyond the Hype, addresses the real stories behind some of the biggest controversies in science. You mentioned a few of them there, the MMR and autism. And there was that hype about genetically modified foods, which were nicknamed Frankenfoods in the media. And I just wanted to know a little bit about what did this sort of coverage do for the reputation of genetically modified foods? It was fatal. I mean, I must say we arrived quite far into this media furore, 2002. And by the time we arrived, I can honestly say that the British public had more or less said no to GM crops when asked in surveys that they said they didn't like the idea. Supermarkets came out and started to ban anything with traces of GM in it. So the supermarkets said no. And eventually the politicians, because their post bags were full of campaigners saying we don't want GM. So it was absolutely fatal. And I think the the thing was that the scientific community, plant scientists then, they just didn't have a kind of, it was, you know, 22, 23 years ago, they didn't have that track record of engaging in these big media controversies. So they were much more, they were coming out when they had a beautiful paper in Nature, but what they weren't used to and just weren't prepared to do really was enter the fray and, you know, go on Five Live and Sky News and back-to-back news programmes with these very articulate campaigners in Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace who were opposed to GM. So it really was the case, in my view, having looked back at this and really reflected and spoken to hundreds of plant scientists I just think that the scientific community did not come out in numbers and speak to the public. Over the past couple of years especially the line between science and politics has really started to blur and we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic that the governments across the world are giving out advice from experts but then you have experts online disagreeing with this advice that's being given out. So what problems does this blaring cause? And can we ever really separate politics and science? Oh, well, that's such a good question. And that I, I really try to grapple with this in my book. To me, this desire, especially in a pandemic, for a, a single clear public health message, you know, and, and I had government press officers coming to me and saying, we're really annoyed because the Science Media Centre is putting out all of these scientists and they're all saying contradictory things and there's multiple voices and we need one clear public health message. And this was in February 2020. There was no scientific consensus. There was no clear message It was not understood by, you know, the best scientists in the world. So we really fought against that. We really fought against this kind of single clear messaging. It's absolutely fine for the government to do that. And of course, that was right and proper. But we didn't want to adopt the whole of the scientific community into their government messaging. So I've been trying to champion multiple voices as long as they're good voices as long as they're good scientists who stick in their lane and talk around their own expertise that actually the more of those we hear the better and and if there is huge uncertainty and if there are disagreements among scientists let let it all hang out let and and actually the public showed themselves 
on the whole, to be very sophisticated in their understanding of science during this pandemic. And that's what I'd like to call for, some kind of principle of a separation of scientific data being put into the public domain. And then we can all argue over how we interpret that. But at the moment, often that data is given to the government and they communicate it. And that's where I think things went a bit wrong. Yeah, I think that's really important, especially, like you said, if there was an individual message from the start of the pandemic, things like wearing a mask wouldn't have been taken into account. So important. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. In this episode, I am joined by an A-team of science-based specialists who are sharing their expertise. We've got expert explainer Fiona Fox, awesome astronomer Matt Bothwell, neat neuroscientist Mary Frances O'Connor, and super science storyteller Kit Chapman. And we're going to get right back on the trail for science Easter eggs. The last clue had us walking towards North America, but where was the bunny talking about? I am at an asteroid site, the Chexalib Crater on the Gulf of Mexico. We were going to the one that took out the dinosaurs pretty much. That crater was the one that we were we were heading towards. But the next clue is... This egg is surrounded by bags of seed, which we can replant if ever we need. So where do you think we are now, Kit? Where do you think we're heading to? I think we're going cold. I think we're going up to the um, the seed bank that's up in Scandinavia. Ooh, we're going to get a bit cold, or we'll see if we're hot or cold when we find out where we're heading to. So, Matt, now we're on to you for some space snapshots. There's been a lot happening up in the skies recently, and to bring us some insights on these exciting extraterrestrial endeavours, lots of alliteration there, we have Matt Bothwell with us. Let's start with seeing space. There's been some... Brilliant images circulated online of James Webb capturing loads of really bright objects. So what images from the scope, what have they shown us so far? And when are we hoping to see those first proper images come through that data? I think the most exciting thing about the incredible James Webb images we've seen so far is that we haven't actually seen any real science data yet. So far, all we've seen are the engineering calibration images James Webb, because the mirror is six and a half metres wide, it was too big to be sent up as a single mirror. So there's actually 18 different hexagons that all function as one big mirror. It's a marvel of engineering. This thing was launched and then unfolded in this like origami way in space. So a few months ago, the telescope focused on a bright nearby star and took the first image and it didn't look particularly great. It was 18 different strange blurry images of the same star. And then over the last few months, those mirrors have had these micro adjustments to bring them all into unanimous harmony. And so they produce one single image of one star. 
for the first time. The most striking thing, I think, for me, particularly as a galaxy astronomer, is that in the background, you can see just an absolute field of galaxies behind this star. James Webb is so sensitive, it can't help but pick up a swarm of galaxies every time it looks, because it's so sensitive, it can't help but see back to the start of the universe every time it opens its eyes. The first science images should be arriving this summer. James Webb, to me, sounds like that kid who doesn't even try and gets top marks in class. That's what James Webb sounds like to me, just getting all those galaxies in the background and not even trying. And obviously, we're going to see the universe like never before with James Webb. Are there any problems in cosmology at the minute, which we hope that this can help us to solve? Yeah, so James Webb has a few sort of major science goals. One of them is what do the atmospheres of exoplanets look like? It's going to be very good at looking for the signatures of molecules. James Webb is going to be very good at looking very, very far away in the universe and seeing basically the first galaxies ever to form. I think the most exciting thing is almost not so much which questions will it answer, but which questions will it reveal? James Webb will tears up for new, exciting problems that we can go and solve in the future. It's like a double whammy. It's going to be great. All those unknown unknowns definitely coming our way soon, I think. And now we're heading into the warmer months. Many of us might be sitting outside on a warm night looking up at the sky. How can we get the best stargazing experience at home? What are your top tips? First of all, as much as you can, try going away from lights. You know, so lights in your house and street lights and stuff, all of that's going to be pretty bad. So get the darkest sky you can. I mean, if you're in the middle of a city, then maybe go out to a park or a field or something. It's also good to remember that your eyes take about 20 minutes or half an hour to properly adapt to the dark. And looking at a phone screen will ruin your dark adaption. So make sure you spend time in the dark and let your eyes adjust and then you'll be able to see fainter and fainter things. There are some really cool things to look out for in the summer sky. I think my favourite thing to look for is the summer triangle. It's this very striking constellation. You can't really miss it. If you look up in the summer months, you'll see this huge triangle in the sky of these three stars. What I like about these three stars is that it sort of hides a really remarkable secret. So one of the stars is Vega, and that's about 25 light years away. One of the stars is Altair, and that's about 16 light years away. But one of the stars is Deneb, and that is nearly 4,000 light years away. And it's, in fact, one of the brightest stars in the entire galaxy. It's like 200,000 times more powerful than our sun. And so, you know, it's the most distant thing we can see with our naked eye, and it's just hiding there completely innocuously. So I like pointing out that triangle to people and saying that that star there is the most distant thing you can see with your eyes. Well, I'm definitely going to look out for that. I feel I've moved recently from London to Cambridge, and my goodness, the difference in looking up and seeing the stars. And we're just going to move a little bit closer to home now. There have been reports over the past few months of problems with space junk. What needs to be done to keep our skies clear? There is a lot of junk out there in space, particularly orbiting around the Earth. And it's getting worse and worse. There are tens of thousands of things in Earth orbit. So we do a few things to sort of try and mitigate this. First of all, we are, you know, when we when we do human space flights, we make sure that we stay in orbits that are relatively clear of space junk. But long term, we are going to have to think about clearing it up. There are all kinds of solutions that are being proposed from sort of uh, big nets in space to sort of catching it all to shooting it down with a laser. The issue is it's only going to get worse because when two pieces of space junk crash into each other, they often fragment and you end up with hundreds of pieces of space junk. And so you get this cascade. Unless we do something about it, leaving Earth orbits within a few decades could be quite difficult. So cleanup efforts are needed. Yeah, we need a space recycling centre for sure. We (laughs) need one of them up there. So now we're going to be playing a little game that I call Newsworthy. And you're going to be split into two teams 
And I'll give each team two relatively recent science news stories. You'll have three quick questions to answer on that topic. And the team which answers the most questions correctly will be crowned the champions. And that essentially means you just get the right to tell everyone that you are the champion. That is, I mean, what better prize could you ask for than that, to be honest? So Fiona and Matt, you're going to be team one. And Mary Francis and Kit, you're going to be team two. And the four categories this week for Newsworthy are pigs, wrecks, ticks, and resurrect. So the team going first will get to pick one of those categories. And to do a little toying cost, it's going to be whichever team gets the closest to the number of estimated electric cars on the roads in the UK as of January 2022. As a team, you give me a number. Whoever gets the closest, you get to go first. I should know this. You should know this. <laughs> yes, I think that you've got an advantage there. Shall I go first then? And Because I, 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 I don't know it. Um, so electric cars on the road in the UK, I'm going to say 90,000. Does that sound right, Mary Francis? Something like that? I'm at a bit of a disadvantage, but it sounds absolutely right to me. <laughs> can, can we do prices right strategy and say 90,001? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's feels obnoxious. I was I was I, I was going to say higher. I was going to say I don't know a couple of hundred thousand or something. What what are your thoughts, Fiona? Yeah, go for go for it. Let's go for two hundred thousand. Okay, and 200, shame 000. shame kit. Yeah, well, the answer is as of January twenty twenty two, there are thought to be four hundred thousand electric cars oh, on the wow. roads in the UK, which is good. That's is that good? Yeah, no, that's much better than I thought we were doing. Yeah, Amazing. and it was seven hundred twenty thousand hybrids, I think, as well. So. Very, very good. So that's just purely electric cars. So that means, Fiona and Matt, you get to go first. So your choice of topic is pigs, wrecks, ticks, or resurrect. What would you like to go for first? I I, I drove home from school and (laughs) I I, I was admiring a field of pigs as I was driving. So that one's calling to me. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I think pigs because it's more likely to be a controversial story like genetically modified pigs or using pigs' hearts in transplants. Yeah, let's let's do pigs. Okay, so pigs. For example, miss nursing in a piglet, uh, being crushed by the mother, fighting uh, between piglets, social isolation, castration, and obviously slaughterhouse. Um, and both situations that would be the situations that should enhance their life so that they should seek uh, and not avoid. So we had positive conditioning, running free, uh, huddling, uh, and also uh, nursing in piglets. Using machine learning and over 7,000 pig sounds, a recent research study found that they could indicate if a pig was in a positive or a negative environment using their grunts alone with up to 90% accuracy. So essentially, they've designed a pig translator. So in this study, short grunts were the sounds associated with pigs feeling happy. But what is a physical sign that pigs are content? Is it A, when they grind their teeth? B, when they wiggle their snouts, or C, when they start to sweat. <laughs> yeah, I was really hoping you were going to give us that machine learning stuff and then just say, is that true or false? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Do you have any thoughts, Fiona? Oh, I don't. I mean, I, I want it to be wiggle less now because that's the funniest. Um, I, I feel just... tooth grinding. So I think sweats, I don't think sweat is under that much emotional control. I think wiggle snout is a bit too, it's a bit too cute. I think that one's trying to bait us. Yeah. Um, okay, do, do you want to go to, uh, to, do do to tooth grinding then? Yes, that's correct. So you've got one point there. It is when they hey. grind their teeth. So the next question is, Pigs are intelligent and sociable animals, meaning they enjoy playing with others. Pigs normally hang around in groups 
What are these groups called? Is it A, a shrewdness, B, a sedge, or C, a sounder? I mean, literally no idea. <laughs> mm, sounder, I don't know, sounder sounds vaguely marine to me. No, I don't know, I'm not feeling that one. Maybe sedge. I feel like a group of pigs would have an actual, you know, like an old sort of Anglo-Saxon word that people have been using for a long time, right? Because, you know, people have been farming pigs, you know, so, you know, I, th- I don't think people would have, 200 years ago would have been talking about a shrewdness of pigs, right? <laughs> like, uh, sedge, sedge kind of feels right. I yeah, I, I'm fully supportive of sedge. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is C, a sounder. It is a sound oh. of pigs. Uh, Shrewdness wow. is apes. Sedge, I now can't remember off the top of my head what sedge was. <laughs> but sh- yes, yeah, sounder is a group of pigs. So you've got one point there still. And the aim of this research was to improve the emotional well-being of pigs that live on farms. Roughly how many pigs are on farms in the UK? Is it A, 3.5 million, B, 4.7 million, or C, 5.9 million? Oh, I'm going to say there's loads of pigs. Should we do 5.9? Yeah, do the highest one. Let's, yeah, 5.9. We, we, we were good on cars by going high, weren't we? Yeah, exactly. Electric cars. So, yeah, 5.9, final answer. The answer is 4.7 million. Damn. So it was middle of the road. But at the end of that round, you've got one point. One point. <laughs> so Kit and Mary Francis, we're coming to you now. So the categories we've got left are Rex, Ticks and Resurrect. What do you fancy, Mary Frances? Well, ticks sounds the most concrete of those, I suppose. So should we say ticks? Sure. Let's tick that box. Let's tick that (laughs) box. Oh, I like that a lot. We did see some correlative data between the social media use as well as tick severity. There is no correlation between social media use and tick frequency. And what was particularly interesting was only 5% of participants actually reported using social media to look up things related to ticks and Tourette syndrome. In a recent small scale study, there was found to be a link between social media usage and an increase in the severity of tick-like behaviours in individuals. And this coincides with observations that there appear to be more teenagers, particularly teenage girls, who are developing tick-like behaviours. So which of these conditions is a tick disorder? A. Dravet syndrome, B. Gersman syndrome, or C. Tourette syndrome? Um, I know this one. Yeah, Tourette's. The answer is C, Tourette syndrome. Yes, spot on. Straight straight in there as well with that answer. On the social media platform TikTok, users can add hashtags to their videos to indicate what their content is about. How many videos have the hashtag Tourette's? Is it A, 500,000, B, 5.5 million, or C, 5.5 billion? I think it's in the millions, isn't it? It, it, I mean, there, there aren't billions of videos on TikTok yet. No. So I would say just the, the five million. Yeah. That sounds right to me. That sounds right. I've got 5.5 billion here. Now you think of making me question it, but I've got to see 5.5 oh, billion. 5.5 billion videos on maybe. Wow. I'm going to have to just look that up really quickly. It is very popular. I mean, it is popular, but there are only, what, 8 billion people in the world. Tourette's has hashtags 5.6 billion. Oh, sorry, 5.6 billion views. So how many video views have they had? Sorry, I got the question wrong. It's how many video (laughs) views has it had? So that was my bad. We got the question wrong. So I feel like I should give you a point for that. 5.6 billion views is still a lot, isn't it? 
a lot of use. So functional conditions, those where the cause is unknown, have spread through populations before, including a phenomenon known as mass psychogenic illness or mass hysteria. The earliest documented cases of mass hysteria were in the Middle Ages. What was the main symptom of these outbreaks? Was it A, headaches, B, dancing or C, fainting? So I know there was a series of dancing manias in Germany in the Middle Ages. Um, and um, you do have fainting with like witch trials and things like that. But I think the dancing one is quite famous, isn't it? Yeah, I say fainting is a, is a close second, but I, I would go dancing as well. And you are spot on. It is B, dancing. That was a full house. Three out of three. Well done. You're here on The Naked Scientists with me, Julia Ravey, and a glorious panel, Kit Chapman, Mary Frances O'Connor, Matt Bothwell and Fiona Fox, who are sharing all about their areas of expertise and answering some of your questions. So we're back to part two of Newsworthy and the scores currently are Matt and Fiona are on one point and Kit and Mary Frances have the maximum score so far of three points. Back to Fiona and Matt now. So your choice is you've got Rex or you've got Resurrect. I, I think I, I chose the last one. This one's your choice. Um, okay, let's go for Resurrect. Resurrect. Amazing. Modern ecosystems require modern solutions. And we want to use whatever we can be inspired by recently extinct species to help us maintain modern ones. So, for example, the Asian elephant is in great trouble because it's so surrounded by humans and the mammoths are very closely related to Asian elephants. And so if you could get some of them sequestered where there are very few humans, it might be a plus for them and a plus for the tundra as well. A study published in Current Biology explored if it is possible to resurrect extinct species using molecular biology techniques in a process known as de-extinction. And this includes taking DNA from a closely related relative and altering the sequence to match the extinct animal. What molecular biology technique allows the specific editing of a DNA sequence? Is it A, electrophoresis, B, CRISPR, or C, PCR? CRISPR. Yeah, CRISPR, right? Spot on, straight in there, no discussion. B, CRISPR. That's because it's controversial. If it's controversial, I know it. (laughs) You know it. Well, there you go. CRISPR is correct. Yes. So that's one point there. In this study, the researchers were trying to recreate the Christmas Island rat, which went extinct in the early 20th century. What is the reported maximum size these rats could grow to? Is it A, half a foot, B, one foot, or C, one and a half feet? I just just want want to go big now. (laughs) (laughs) Go big or go home. Yeah, big rats. Um, Half a foot is, yeah, that's that's nothing. That's pitiful, right? I mean, so I think it's going to be either a foot or a foot and a half. I I, I agree. And I'm sure I've seen in one of the tabloids a very, very, very large rat. The tabloids love pictures of absolutely huge. So, yeah, I think think go for one and a half. Okay, one and a half feet. One and a half feet is indeed correct. Imagine seeing a rat that was one and a half foot. I mean, <laughs> I, I can't even imagine if I see a normal rat, I'm just on a chair somewhere. So one and a half feet, I just pass out. So the researchers essentially found it was impossible to create many of the key genes needed to resurrect the Christmas Island rats. I mean, I'm 
actually quite grateful uh, because <laughs> certain parts of the code has been lost over time. And this includes some genes related to the rat's sense of smell. So why is the sense of smell important for resurrecting an animal? Is it A, smell guides behavioural impulses like mating and fighting? B, the animals would eat poisonous food by accident? Or C, rats are blind, so they need smell to navigate? C is not true, right? So, like, it must be a a, a a feels a feels sensible to me. Yeah, I like a. You'd always just raise them in a research environment and not feed them poison, right? <laughs> you would be you'd be spot on. The answer is a. So, smell is well very done. important for animals' behaviour in general, much more than it is for us. But yes, so that's why it's very important that these animals, if they were resurrected, they had the proper smell genes that they would have had in the wild. Amazing. So we're now on to the very last topic. And sorry, Kit and Mary Francis, you don't get a choice. You've got Rex. Eventually, just by really working in a very strict, regimented manner, covering one box, then the next, then the next, guess what? We've found the endurance. The pictures are just remarkable. It's just sitting on the seafloor. The ship is there. It's intact. You can see the paintwork. It's, it's as good as that. It doesn't get any better. It is a beautiful wreck. The wreck of Ernest Shackleton's Endurance was discovered after almost 107 years following its sinking on the seafloor of the Weddell Sea in Antarctica. The ship was found to be in relatively pristine condition, considering it's been sat there for a century. What conditions did not contribute to the endurance being found intact? Is it A, the cold water, B, a lack of wood-eating worms, or C, weak currents? Uh, so I know that down there, that basically you can't get the worms because it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's too cold and it's an anaerobic environment, I think, for them. They, they just There's nothing down there. But there is, there is no weak currents around Antarctica. I mean, you've got, I've been in Cape Horn, that is not a weak current. So I think that that's probably the, the red herring there. What do you think? Well, that sounds convincing to me. <laughs> I'll go with that. Yes, Kit, you use your lived experience to get yourself a point because, yes, yeah, sea weak currents. So they thought it's the cold water and those lack of those worms being there. And the ship, have you seen the pictures? It looks incredible. Just like it looks pristine, yeah. Pristine, yeah, pristine. And Endurance is one of many shipwrecks in the world's oceans and seas. How many shipwrecks are thought to be sitting on the beds of our waters? Is it A, 300,000, B, 3 million, or C, 13 million? What, worldwide? Yep, across the entire world. It's got to be quite a lot. I mean, think of the hundreds of years we've been sending ships around. I, I would imagine there's probably 300,000 just around the UK, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I mean, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of shipping. I'd be probably going for the millions. I'd, what do you yeah. think? 13, 13 million? Should we go high? I think 13 million. Let's go 13 million. So the answer is B, 3 million. So not quite 13 million, but still millions worldwide. And that's obviously an estimation because they think less than 1% have actually been found and explored. And when a ship sinks, it becomes part of the ecosystem and sea creatures take up residence amongst the decks. And that, that sort of creates this artificial reef. What is one thing artificial reefs are designed to be used for? Is it A, to increase catch for commercial fishing? B, to give fish a more stimulating environment? Or C, to move fish to allow for altered water temperatures? Oh, I don't know. Maybe A? I think that would be, uh, you know, something people would like to be able to create 
environments for commercial fishing, but I don't know. What do you think? Kim? Yeah. So I don't think it's B. I don't think we just, we just like no. to entertain fish. I mean, unless it's finding Nemo, that's probably not what we do. <laughs> I'm, I'm tempted by C because I'm thinking about things like the, the Great Barrier Reef, where mm. you're seeing a lot of bleaching of the coral. Yeah. And trying to move it into to other areas. That's something that I could see people doing, but yeah, and, you're convincing well, me, kid. Go on. What should we? What do you? What do you? Yeah, want to I think C. I, I like C. Let's go for C. And the correct answer is C to move fish to allow for altered water temperatures. Yes. So they're making these artificial reefs, and they said it's really good that they can sort of look at shipwrecks as an example, and then you can show that we can make these artificial reefs and move them, and the fish will go where the reef goes, and that allows for us to get fish into the temperature of water that they should be in. I think we have a winner, right? And I think the winners are Kit and Mary Francis. Well done. Good job. Did have a tiebreaker, but we didn't need it. We had a winner, but I think it was only by, was it by one point? One point, I think. Just by one, I think, yeah. Well, that might <laughs> have been a tie. One point. Yeah, that's... <laughs> we're now going back to the bunny. So we thought in the last clue, Kit said we're heading to the seed bank in Scandinavia. And let's see if we were right. I am at the Millennium Seed Bank in Sussex. We were going to a seed bank, but we were going to the Millennium Seed Bank in Sussex, which is part of Kew Gardens. You were on the right market, but we were we were just a, a little bit too far north there. Sussex is nicer than Svalbard anyway. Yeah, so. I mean, you know, we've got lovely, lovely Sussex here. And the next clue is... This egg is swimming in a lake, I think. It's hard to tell because the water is pink. Mary Frances, where do you think this clue might be taking us? Oh, that's a good question. I grew up in Montana, so part of me wants to say Yellowstone because of all the unusual colours we get in, in pools there. But I may be wrong. Amazing. So we're on our final little round now of questions. And this is our quick fire questions from listeners. So these questions, we answer them as quickly as possible. I'll give you one question each. So Mary Frances, Jenny asked, if someone close to you is going through grief, how can you best support them? Well, really, I think often people think the goal is to cheer them up. But actually, that often creates more feeling of distance. The person is already being, you know, under this really dense cloud. And I think really the goal should be more to just be with them and to let them know that there is a future and you will be with them there as well, even when they can't quite envision it yet. Now, Kit, over to you. Paul asked, how much do you think Formula One cars will change over the coming years with advancing technology based on how much they've changed in the past? Hugely. So we're looking at moving to probably an entirely new fuel system. The the ICE, the internal combustion engine, won't be around much longer. We're looking at a carbon neutral sport within the next 10 years, eight years essentially. And so they're going to start looking at alternative fuels. Maybe that's electric, maybe that's hydrogen, maybe that's synthetic hydrocarbons but you will not see petrol in Formula One cars in five years' time. Fiona, we've got a science media question for you here. Don's asked, do platforms like Twitter do more harm than good when it comes to communicating science news? No, I don't think they do more harm than good. I don't think we know that. There's a huge amount of good, accurate, evidence-based information on social media platforms. And of course, many, many people share links to great science on Twitter. 
I don't think it does more harm than good. I think it has the potential to do harm. And that's why we're asking scientists to get out there and use social media and engage with mainstream media and, and make sure they drown out the voices of, of harmful misinformation. Brilliant. And Matt, finally over to you. We've got a question from Lewis who asks very simply, what are your thoughts on space tourism? I think it's going to happen whether we like it or not. I think if billionaires want to go into space, uh, they're going to do whatever they want. (laughs) I think, to be honest, it's a little bit of a distraction right now. I think there's a lot of exciting things going on in the space technology industry and just a handful of billionaires having joyrides up to the upper atmosphere is not particularly interesting. Um, I'm not very interested in it, to be honest, compared to a lot of other stuff going on in the space tech industry. Yeah, way too expensive for a ticket as well. Like, no chance, no chance. We've got to end the Easter egg hunt now, and we've headed towards Montana there, and we found out where did this bunny take us to? I am at Middle Island in Western Australia. And it was actually taking us to Middle Island in Western Australia. So this was in the news recently that there's a pink lake in Western Australia and they were looking at the components of this lake and looking at the bacterial components that sort of make up this pink colour. But we've got one very final clue for everyone to sort of pitch in and guess where we're ending up in this Easter egg hunt. You're near the end. Only one more clue and some bunny is going to have a happy ending. The final clue is... This egg is home amongst its kind. With one million friends, it may be hard to find. So where do we think we're finishing the egg hunt? One million eggs? Ooh. One million. I'm assuming it's not a biological question because I can think of a very rude answer there, but I'm probably not going to Could it be with penguins, do you think? Well, we'll find out now. I am at the Natural History Museum in Turing. Seems like you scientists are a real bunch of experts. Have a happy Easter, everyone. We're going to the Natural History Museum based in Tring. They have an egg collection there and they've got, I think it's over 200,000 nests. So overall, like a million eggs. So it's going to be surrounded by fascinating eggs there. And sadly, we must leave our show there for today. So thank you very much for listening. And thanks to our wonderful panel, Mary Frances, Fiona, Kit and Matt. And next week, we'll be frothing the milk and pressing the beans because we're talking all things coffee with rising bean prices and struggles with climate change. Join us to see what the future of caffeinated joes could look like. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the Institute for Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Julia Ravey. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.